Woohoo! Yep, notes for everything. All right, friends. No pop quiz tonight. Amen. All God's people said. Amen. 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 All right. All right. So um, tonight we uh, we think about really over the the, the last couple of weeks as we've been going through we've gone through Old Testament 101. And then we took a break, did another course, came back for Old Testament 102. We've worked our way through Israel's history all the way up to the intertestamental period. We've gone through the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, essentially the wisdom required by Israel's kings to act as the rulers of God's people on God's behalf. And we finish up the course tonight with wisdom literature uh, in Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. So, thanks, Cody. Uh, as we get into these books, let me frame how you should think of them. In many ways, these books function at, like a, a commentary on Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Like Proverbs, the Song of Songs is, uh, you might say, a how-to manual for exercising dominion, uh, just as Adam and Eve were commanded to in Genesis 2. But whereas the Proverbs focuses on the command to work and care and, and care for the garden, kind of the wisdom for our, our day jobs within God's kingdom, so to speak. The, the Song of Songs focuses on the other side of the creation mandate, being fruitful and increasing in number. And in many ways, the Song of Songs is really all about Genesis 2, 25. It says about Adam and Eve, it says they were both naked and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Um, and so that, that kind of union in a world that was unstained by sin, we really don't understand what that looks like. And so um, we might catch a glimpse of that in Song of Songs. So now if Proverbs and, songs, and Song of Songs in general give us wisdom for operating in a world that's really as it should be, the world of Genesis 2, then Ecclesiastes, just like the book of Job, shows us a commentary on Genesis 3, the world of the fall. What does it look like to search for meaning in a world that's wrecked by sin, where meaning seems so hard to come by? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. So that's the key difference between these two books. And of course, what they have in common, besides both being poetic, is that it's very easy to lose the author's train of thought through them. Um, it's, it's easy to get lost in all the twists and turns and this, where the author is going with the book. And for that reason, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs are often mined for, for great quotes, but they're, not large, they're largely not understood uh, as whole books. And so our goal today really is to try and understand Solomon's intent in writing them uh, with, when, and find out the one point that he's trying to make with each book. That's a big task. So let's start with Ecclesiastes. So let's talk about uh, context for the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, context for Ecclesiastes. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 12 tell us that the author was a son of David, Solomon. Solomon wrote it around 930 B.C., but um, we really don't know who this this preacher is. You hear him referred to throughout the book. Such and such says the preacher, as the text calls, um, calls the author was. Um, many have said that it was Solomon because of, the fame of the, because of his fame for his wisdom. 
Um, and because the text says the preacher was king over, uh, over Israel in Jerusalem. But this, this title, Son of David, could refer to really any descendant. So some aspects of the book, like uh, where the king is referred to in the third person, sound decidedly unlike Solomon. So this teacher is, an unknown, is unknown apart from this book. And he ends up having, time, having a timeless presence among us, really not dissimilar from Job. It appears that it was written during the same time, or during the time of despair in the life of Israel. A time of despair, because <laughs> there's lots of times of despair to choose from. Um, possibly Solomon discovers rich truths from other uh, from others Old Testament books. So how do we establish some context for this book within redemptive history then? So if it's, if it's kind of hard to place uh, for just pure history, what about redemptive history? Well, a few thoughts for you. Uh, first, we can think of this book, as I mentioned before, really as being a how-to guide to life in a fallen world. A how-to life or how to guide to life in a fallen world. And in that sense, it really sits atop the storyline of, of redemptive history. Um, kind of applicable to all of time, because we're living in a Genesis 3 world, as my daughter reminds me. Um, so, uh, let's see. Second, we can think of this book uh, as it was used by the first compilers of the Old Testament, uh, of the Old Testament canon. Okay? Uh, though not inspired, this way that they ordered the Old Testament books is uh, very informative for us. I don't know if you know this, but when we look at the Old Testament and the books, the way the books are in order now, that's not the way they were ordered in the Hebrew Old Testament. And so uh, it looks a little bit different. So um, that initial ordering, uh, then actually that though the ordering that Jesus would have been taught uh, Ecclesiastes sits near the end of the Bible with material written after the exile between Esther and Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Uh, in that sense, then, Ecclesiastes may have been positioned as an answer to meaninglessness of life after the exile, right? Or in and after the exile. Possibly answering ex existential questions raised by uh, by a people who had lost their land, lost their temple, lost their nationhood, and so much else uh, in which their identity would have been grounded. Right? We talked about that a little bit uh, before. So, so that's that's two. And then three. Uh, the Old Testament ideas here really are wrapped up in the words of Christ in John chapter seventeen, verse three. This is uh, we did a, we did a whole series on on this prayer. It's called. Uh, some people might call it the high priestly prayer. Or we call it the Lord's other prayer, right? Uh, and so in John 17, 3, this is a great one to memorize, by the way. He says, and this is life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus just says, this is what life is. Boom, knowing God through Jesus Christ. That's it. All right, so to know and obey Christ and so, therefore, to know and obey God is to find all the doors of life open. Knowing Jesus is what it's all about, and obeying him. This really, this is what creates the meaningful aspect of life, is it not? Without God enthroned upon your heart, then everything else pursued is in vain. Whatever may be the circumstances of the passing hours, wealth and 
wealth or poverty, adversity or prosperity, sunshine or shadow, out of all, the true values are obtained if God is the one who is enthroned upon your heart. Okay? So, with that said, then let's go to the message of Ecclesiastes. And the question that we so often associate with it, right? What is the meaning of life? Isn't it just all fleeting and empty and pointless and vain since we were all just racing towards death anyway? That may seem really foreign to you, but it's not foreign to probably a, a number of people that are in your sphere of influence. This, is a, this really is a, a way of thought known as nihilism. Um, it's been around because, again, as we see in this book, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, but it really gained prominence in the early part of the 20th century, especially amongst those who were caught in the middle of World War I. Um, World War I, going in, there was a lot of uh, structure, a lot of uh, sense of purpose in going into this war, things like that. And then coming out of it, there was a sense of, what is, why? Why are we even doing this? What is life even about? Why are we even here? Right? Um, I was reminded of this, um, getting to read uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. It's just, it's this, this guy who's a soldier in, in World War I, in the middle of trench warfare. And it's just an awful graphic portrayal of what real life was like there. And just coming from it and just thinking, could there, how could there possibly be meaning to, meaning to life if this is the reality of the world? And so, again, so that way of life, that way of thinking and viewing the world may, be, may seem really far to you, but it's probably not to people that you know. And so it's good, so good that we're familiar with what God's Word says here in Ecclesiastes. Amen? All right, so in this sense, again, um, Ecclesiastes is positioned uh, to answer this question. So, um, a popular theme in this book, we see it in chapter 1, verse 2. Everything is vanity. vanity. Meaningless, right? Meaningless. And then the word there literally in, in chapter 1, verse 2 means breath. Take a breath real quick. doesn't matter how long or short. As long as a breath as you can take, and it's still that much. It's here, and it's gone. Empty, right? It's here and gone. Living, basically it says that the meaning of life is like breath. Or life itself is like a breath. Don't get caught up in pursuing things that ultimately don't matter. The author appears to be really instructing us that looking for ultimate meaning in this life, which he uses the, another popular phrase, under the sun, right? All over this book. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun, things like that. Um, looking for life, or the ultimate meaning, uh, uh, or sorry, looking for ultimate meaning only in this life, here on earth really is brief, unimportant, and nothing but a breath. There's nothing, un there's nothing new under the sun. There's, nothing, there's really nothing at all under the sun that's earthly that can give meaning to life. Meaning is only found in, what er in whatever is over the sun. Right? which is God himself and God alone. So center your life, therefore, on God. Life's pleasures cannot provide lasting satisfaction, but life's pleasures can be enjoyed from 
God. Fear God, therefore, and keep his commandments. So if we wanted to summarize this, uh, the thoughts of this book, we could do so really in three sentences. Did you know that? Three sentences. Conviction affects character through conduct. That's one. Conviction affects character through conduct. Number two, conduct our conduct untrue to conviction is disaster. That makes sense, right? Conduct untrue to conviction is, is disaster. And then three, conduct guided by con- conviction then is fulfillment. Okay? So again, let's, let's uh, go back to chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, and somebody read that for me. Chapter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Vanity and vanity, says the preacher. Vanity and vanity is all of vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Okay, now let's skip down to verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come out. So is everything meaningless? It's a, it's a serious question. It's something that demands our attention. The answers to this dilemma, or the lack thereof, will really affect everything in, in your life. From psychological makeup, to values and ethics, to ver- the very clothes that we wear. So, here's a summary of the book's answer to this question. I love this. I love this play on words here. Meaningful, meaningful. All is Meaningful. Because all is ordered by an eternal, sovereign, and purposeful God. We're going to hear those words come back around later on. Eternal, sovereign, and purposeful God. Therefore, we should fear God and rejoice in what he has given us to do and to have. By the way, I, just, I need to make sure this is clear as well. This is, this is almost exactly the lesson that I use when I teach, uh, when I teach with Kabbalists. So... You're, this is, you're, it's like you're all getting to sit in with us in Nepal right now. Uh, it's it's kind of raining there right now, so I'm, I'm enjoying the sun. Um, but this is, uh, yeah, so what a, I love getting to be a part of that and the, the way that this blesses us here as well. So let's dig in. God's character then and life's meaning. God's character and life's meaning. Ecclesiastes then confronts man's attempt to find meaning in this creation apart from the creator. And really that's the key, isn't it? Man's attempt to find create find meaning in the creation apart from the creator. Um, sounds like Romans 1. It comes from it comes to really this sobering conclusion that without a sovereign creator God all is vain. Right? Without a sovereign creator God, all is vanity. But uh, a more hopeful uh, conclusion is that if the, if the universe was created and is now governed by an eternal, sovereign, and purposeful God, then there is great meaning and value to life. Now, notice I didn't say that the universe needs a God in order to have meaning. Um, I, I said that in order for the universe and our lives in this universe to have meaning, this God who created the universe, and God states that so clearly without having even any, any need to demonstrate his existence, he just says in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth, right? Amen. We don't have to argue for God's existence. 
we just start there with our presupposition. And if somebody says, well, you can't really start with that as a presupposition, ask them what presuppositions they're starting with. We all start with presuppositions. We all make base faith assumptions. Otherwise, the, if you don't, well, you, you do. Everybody does. Even the, even the nihilist, somebody who embraces this whole thing of nihilism that everything is meaningless, they still make faith assumptions, right? They make assumptions that everything is meaningless and that there's no... There's, so you, you can't. You can't play it. We'll talk more about that later on, won't we, Kevin? Uh, I'm excited about that with apologetics. Um, so, uh, let's see. Yes, so, um, so in order for the universe and our lives in this universe to have meaning, this God who created the universe must have certain attributes. Eternality, sovereignty, and purposefulness. Okay? Eternality, sovereignty, and purposefulness. Not just any old God will do, um, only if, if God in his sovereignty ordains all things that come to pass and has the power to carry out all his plans, can anything temporal like our lives have any kind of lasting, meaningful significance? The God of Ecclesiastes is a sovereign God. And so everything is filled with significance because God does nothing in vain or without reason. Therefore, God is to be feared, and all things that he gives us are to be enjoyed. After all, he has good and meaningful reasons to, uh, to give them to us. This includes our jobs, homes, families, and so forth, but it also includes our troubles and our afflictions. These two are meaningful and good. Do you hear that? Even your troubles are meaningful, and they are good. The problem is, we are the ones who don't make sense. We only see part. He sees everything, and he sees his. He sees the purpose of this this difficulty in the scope of the whole, and we don't. And so, what kind of what kind of rebellion is it then for us who see only this little part, right? And we say we shake our fist at God and say, "How could this be right? How could this be good?" We we know nothing, and He knows all things. And think then, in the midst of our rebellion, how kind and patient is he with us? Isn't that good? All right, so, um, we may not understand right now, but we are called to trust God and to believe that he's not making any mistakes. Praise the Lord. Uh, now, I begin with the first words of the book, declaring everything to be meaningless. And I, and I told you that the message of the book is that everything is meaningful under an eternal, sovereign, and purposeful God. But how do you get from point A to point B? Okay? Uh, let me give you a, a little bit of an overview of the book structure, and I'll explain. So let's talk about structure and theme text. Okay? Structure and theme text. This book begins with a, with a section, um, uh, a section I was just reading from, with an introduction that essential, that essential works, uh, essentially works as an, antithesis, an antithesis or an antithesis. All is vain, setting up this challenge that must be addressed. Okay? Incidentally, the skeptical honesty that we find in this book is kind of refreshing, right? Isn't it kind of refreshing? It's kind of nice. Um, so uh, this is kind of like the person that is what I call refreshingly lost, right? The person that's lost and knows that they don't know Christ and 
it, it's, almost, it's almost kind of nice and refreshing to see people like that every now and then. Instead of the, the person that is lost but is genuinely convinced that they're saved and doesn't really want to hear anything about the gospel because they've got it figured out and they're saved. It's kind of nice to be able to start right there at ground zero and say, there you go. Um, so that brings on other challenges, of course, but it is nice. Um, so with that said, um, we have all the time, uh, we, have all, we all have the time in our lives when, when uh, this is what we feel. We, we praise God that he's constructed a, um, oh, how do I say this? Um, We, we praise God that he's constructed a piece of his word to draw us back from cynicism, back to Christ uh, and to faith. Does that make sense? So God uses his word in this way to, that and when we're in the midst of cynicism, we're in the midst of kind of doubting everything and just being kind of down on life and down on ourselves and down on God. That, uh, you ever had where just like a, uh, there's like one specific verse that just comes to mind or somebody comes to you and says it or you turn on the radio and it happens to be there. And it may not even be somebody that's intending to say it, right? They're just, they're, they pass off some sort of cultural phrase that's, that's common, but then it's got this grain of truth that's in it and it, it, it lights up like a, like a torch in your mind. I, I love when God does that. He's so kind to do that. Um, don't when you, that when those things happen, don't dismiss them. But the God of the Bible is speaking to you. Be encouraged. Um, and he's using that for your good. Um, so with that said, then note that with this introduction completed at the beginning of the book, the book really shifts from now from first person to third person. And then a large chunk of this book is all written in third person. Um, and as we really um, talking about this teacher, the preacher, in third person. And then we'll flip back to third person, or back to, uh, back to first person uh, toward the end. So um, the next chapters then go, go back and forth answering this basic objection, right? This basic objection that all things are meaningless. We'll begin with proof in chapter 2 that all indeed is vain. The teacher has tried everything, uh, yet everything's still without meaning. And then at the end of chapter 2, we see the book's thesis. All is meaningful if the sovereign God rules the universe. And that thesis is defended, objected to, defended. And then finally, we reach a conclusion in the epilogue in chapter 12. And so uh, I want to give you just kind of a preview of the ending, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Let's read that really quickly together. Who can read that for me? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, things, whether good or evil. Okay. So that's kind of the part of the, the bookend there at the end of, uh, of the book. So um, now let's drop back now and we're going to look at a couple of sections. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 23. As I mentioned before, the opening two chapters are an exploration of what the meaning of life might be. Once we get through the introduction, then the teacher spends the rest of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 giving us a tour of his pursuit for relevance, meaning, lasting value of life apart from God. He tries to find significance in wisdom, wine, laughter, riches, delicacies, his work, his projects, sex, power, 
fame, and then full material gluttony. Right? Um, so if he wanted it, essentially he got it. And so let's look there at chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Then I looked on all the work that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There's no profit under the sun. Right. So all this was no more successful at providing life and meaning and purpose and significance than chasing after and trying to grasp the wind. It's impossible. Okay? So, and the psychological effect, effect then of such a bleak outlook on life. Verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Anybody ever felt that way? Ooh, it's getting a little bit closer to our neighborhood, right? If we first we think like well, it's not, it's not all meaningless, and then and then the more we realize, oh yeah, I felt that way before. Huh. Yeah. All right. How about verse twenty-three, chapter two, verse twenty-three? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh no, not rest in the night. This also is vanity. No wonder. Oh, there you go. No wonder this guy hated life, right? Even the worldly enjoyments he had had come to an end at some point. Everything ends and everything dies. It's a wonder that anyone manages to smile, get a smile across their face ever, right? So uh, let's look now at chapter two, verses twenty-four through, or yeah, twenty-four through twenty-six. So with that said, let's remember uh, the flow of thought here is important. Nothing that a man can do between birth and death has any lasting significance. Okay? Therefore, it has no value. But now in, in verses 24 through 26, he's going to lay out the solution to this apparent vanity of everything under the sun. All right? So let's, um, I want to hear, hear somebody that's not reading from New King James read this passage. Yeah, I got you. Go for it. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat and enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This, too, is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Okay. All right. So, uh, and you'll notice... There's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a difference, but in, in verse 25 specifically, we're going to get to it. Uh, but let's read. Uh, let me let me just say uh, go back to verse 24 for a second. There's nothing better for man to for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. Uh, this also I've seen that is from the hand of God. Notice that he says the best thing that a man can do is eat and drink and enjoy his work. Amen. Right. Uh, but I thought he just said that all was vanity. How, then how does how does, how does this work, right? How does he now recommend work? Uh, how is it that he says that there can be and ought to be satisfaction and enjoyment in all of life? That's what eat and drink means. It's a metaphor to mean everything one does. For eating and drinking are all really the base of all activities. Think about the New Testament, the New Testament in that. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, right? So this is a 
phrase that really means anything because if if, you, if it involves eating and drinking, then it pretty much involves everything else. So that's the, the way that, that goes. Um, so you should live life, be happy, and actually enjoy the labor of your hands. Uh, that's um, that uh, same vain labor uh, that was mentioned above. Can, he, can that really be what he was saying? What's the catch then? Well, the catch is the rest of the verse. The, the text says, literally, this too I have seen, that it is from... The hand of God. Okay? Solomon has seen many things. Obviously, I'll have chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 16. But there is one other thing that he has seen. That eating and drinking, that is to say, the living of life, and enjoyment of one's work, comes from the hand of God. And that changes everything, doesn't it? The ability to live life and to enjoy the work of your hands is a gift from God. That really does change everything. Before, that is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 23, Solomon was looking at life through the lens of the natural man. And how, um, and we can understand this. He was just simply reporting the things that he had seen with his eyes. And when that was the only information-gathering instrument that he used, his conclusions were sound, though pessimistic. But once he remembered that there is a creator of this creation, then life took on a different origin, a different purpose, a different means, a different end. And why is that? Um, why is it that that which was once vain can now have meaning? How is that possible? Why is it uh, that that which was once the cause of depression now brings joy? Well, it's because the origin of every activity that one undertakes is from the very hand of an eternal and meaningful God. The only way something temporal like our lives can have eternal significance is if an eternal God orders them because he is a purposeful God who never does anything without reason or without cause. And this includes our lives. Uh, They are too from the hand of God. And that means that he is in control of them and he gives them to us. And he gives us our various tasks each day. So then, uh, look back now. The uh, reason we wanted, I wanted to hear from somebody else not reading the New King James here in verse 25. There's this rhetorical question that, to come back up in this claim. Okay, So somebody read, somebody read uh, from the New King James. Anybody have a New King James version? Just, just verse 25. Just verse 25. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Okay. Who can eat, who can have enjoyment more than I? Now, somebody that doesn't have the New King James. Or who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him. Apart from him. Okay. So, again, this is where we have to talk. We have to drop back for just a second and talk about translation. Okay. Is the New King James Version, in, in and of itself, is it inspired? Is it breathed out by God? The translation is not. The text that it is translating from is. Okay? So, again, you're going to have different, um, you're going to have different translations and they consider different things as they do so. Each of them, each of the English translations is going to have its shortcomings. Some are, some have, in my opinion, more shortcomings than others. I think the New King James Version is an excellent translation. This is why we made the move uh, to the New King James as the, as the translation that we use. However, 
it does encounter some hiccups every now and then. And so uh, here in the context in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 25, it would be better translated uh, in the the scope of the whole passage and talking about him, about God, rather than about the, the, the speaker himself. Okay? All right? For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God, because this is from the hand of God. Okay? So the answer then is that, uh, is that everyone eats and many people find enjoyment without him. Right? Just look at Psalm 73. But it's only fleeting. It's only vain enjoyment of the first verses of chapter 2. It's passing like a vapor. It will soon be gone. It has no weight, no significance, unless it is from him. Unless it is not, uh, it is not to use the words of the text without him, right? So the only reason anybody experiences any kind of enjoyment in this life uh, is because God created everything good, right? It's part of common grace. But those who seek to enjoy the creation without the creator, it is, they're only going to enjoy it for a moment. When you, when you sit in there and you eat fried chicken and you're reminded that God made chicken so that it tastes good and over Hundreds and thousands of years, we've learned how to how to fry that bird so that it tastes even better, right? The creativity and the skill that was given to mankind, who gives that? God does, right? And you can enjoy it just in and of itself. And like, man, this chicken is good. Or, God, thank you so much that you made chicken good. Which is the better of the two? I submit to you the second one is because it leads us to worship of the creator rather than the creation. And that's what Solomon's talking about here. That life is truly lived when it is lived for the one who is over the sun and not for anything that is under the sun. Everything that's under the sun is for our enjoyment, yes, but according to his plans, according to his purposes, that he would be glorified above all things. And when everything is in its right place, <clears throat> everything is truly right. The problem is we live in a world that's marred by sin. So we won't get to see all those things right in their right place until Jesus returns. So I got a little bit ahead of myself, though. So verse 26 makes sense. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to whom he pleases. But to those whom he does not give his wisdom and knowledge and joy, they're left in the dark. They don't know him. They, they live without him. Therefore, their days are subject to that vanity of working, gathering, storing up wealth for someone else to inherit once they die. That is the vain life. Attempting to live life in this creation apart from acknowledging the creation's creator. But God is the author, the, prov- the, the, provider, the providing Lord of all that happens. And since he does nothing in vain, nothing therefore is vain. Everything has meaning since it comes from the infinitely meaningful and glorious creator. Meaningful, meaningful. All is meaningful because God has appointed it all. All right? So Solomon has this different perspective on life. There is this meaning and purpose to life because God has ordered all things that come to pass. And we are to therefore trust and enjoy what God has given us and revere such a God. This common refrain appears at a number of places in the book. Places like chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. I'll go ahead and read that. It's a really short of time. 
I know that, not, uh, that nothing is better for them to do than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it, and that, uh, that men should fear before him. This is the meaning in life. And we read that essentially in a number of other places. Chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 9. We don't have time. So, uh, the rest of the book, right? We've only read like three chapters, right? Selections from chapters. We don't have time to go through the rest of this book. Um, but I do want to go over just a couple of things. So, first, we do see that um, there is this objection, uh, humanity's main objection to God's goodness and sovereignty, starting in chapter 3, verse 16. And that is what? The problem of evil. How can God be good? How can God be sovereign? How can God be purposeful? if evil still exists in the world. So, uh, really, he gives us three answers. Um, answer number one. Uh, the, the paraphrase of this would be, uh, just shut your mouth. Right? Much like Job, isn't it? Right? How, who are you, created one, to challenge the creator? Chapter 5, verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. All right? Second part of this answer through chapter 7, uh, verse 14. Really, I would call it a clear-headed assessment of prosperity. All right? How do we even really understand what prosperity is? He says it there in this verse. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. So, really, we have to ask ourselves, is the lack of material things really a sign of God's curse? Didn't we deal with this in, in Job as well? Perhaps the, part of the problem of evil is misunderstanding of what is really good. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Wasn't there a misunderstanding of what's truly good? To live under God's good, benevolent rule? Instead, to say, I will be like God and to, I will rule myself. I will decide what is good and what is evil. Maybe this is part of the problem of evil, and we can't decide that objectively because we have chosen a side in this matter. We chose a side in Adam. And so we're not objective in this. So that's part of the problem for us. Um, and then the third answer, uh, really at the end of chapter 7, why do bad people prosper? You see that in chapter 7, verse 15, which is really a silly question. Why? Because there's no such thing as good people. We're all bad people, Right? And so Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, verse 29. Truly, this only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Uh, we end with a, with a lengthy section of application, chapters 8 and following. Several things there. We could spend lessons individual on each one of them. But obey the king, work hard, enjoy your spouse, seek wisdom, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Lastly, I want to show you Ecclesiastes points to Jesus. So as you, as you use this book, and you should, you should use this book. Remember the flow of thought through the book is important to understand any part of this book. Right? Again, this is why we've been going through this, these books in this way. We show you the, 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 the main idea of the book and then how these theme texts support that main theme. Right? Don't just consider any passage in isolation. Don't, don't fall for the for the, the, the Facebook post, the, 
the the Google Google it kind of thing, where we just pull, we lift a verse from here and there. Think about the context. Think about the main point point of the book. If that verse is going against the main point of the book, you need to read it again. All right. So um, once you can put the whole thing together, then what a marvelous treasure there is for you to study. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. We read it already, but I want you to hear it again. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For uh, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So use the book of Ecclesiastes. Use it when you're feeling cynical, as an honest path back to faith. Use it in evangelism, to honor the meaninglessness of your non-Christian friend that they're grappling with, and then turn them toward the gospel. And then third... Use it to highlight the treasure of the gospel in your own heart. Okay? The book of Ecclesiastes never explains the gospel, but it sure enough points to it. It tells us that God is sovereign and can be trusted. And, and I, I love this question. What is the greatest evidence of his trustworthiness in the face of this seeming nihilism that the world is engulfed in? It's a sovereign God who used the greatest tragedy in history, his son's death on the cross for our eternal benefit, right? It's the, the sovereign God who used the greatest tragedy in history for our eternal benefit. Ecclesiastes also says that, oh, that all are wicked, yet meaning comes from those who please God. Sounds kind of like, um, like, like in Psalms. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord, right? And this is the idea. Then how can, how can this work together? How is it the wicked then could please God? Through faith in Jesus' sacrificial work on our behalf. Praise God for this little gem of the book. Oh, look at that. We ran out of time. I ran out of time for Son Solomon. That's, that's just too bad. Looks like we figured out what to do next week. Hey! There's enough, there's enough to talk, at least spend a little time, and then we can get into talking about the. Interestingly enough, then we can get into talking about the convention. Ha <laughs> ha! Zing. So, any, any questions about that before we, before we conclude for the night? Also, as well, if, if you have any questions from anything we haven't covered from mm. Genesis to Song of Solomon, we've got three now genres of, of Scripture covered in Old Testament survey. If there's anything we skipped over from any of those classes you missed that you want an answer to, you want a deeper dive into, or even a survey over, please send us text or email or yes. whatever, and we'll, we'll find some time to, to answer those questions as well before we transition to the prophets. Absolutely. No, it's it is it's survey, um, but at the same time, there may be things we're missing because we're we're trying to we're trying to keep this at a ten thousand foot view. So if there you have big questions about this, and there's really no such thing as a small question, so you ask them. We would love we'd love to help you. Uh, we may not have the answer either, but we'll we'll we can start looking through and looking for it together. Okay, praise God for the Old Testament. This is this is the this is the air that Jesus was breathing as as he as he walked. Right? This is the this when he when he quotes from the scriptures, he's not quoting from the New Testament, friends. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from this stuff. So praise God. Uh, the more we understand the Old Testament, the better we understand the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for uh, thank you for Ecclesiastes. Lord, thank you that life is meaningful. Uh, under the under the banner of the of the King of creation, the Creator of all things, Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts against uh, this feeling that everything's meaningless. Lord, I I feel like everywhere I look, I see 
threads of that ideology, that worldview, uh, in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our world. So, Lord, would you guard your people from it? And, Lord, help us to see how you so ingeniously answer these things in your word. Lord, help us also, as we talk with friends that may be in... um, Maybe uh, under the influence of this worldview, maybe struggling with this feeling of hopelessness and that everything is meaningless. Lord, that we not abandon the authority that is over us with the word of God. Lord, we don't have to rationalize. We don't. We 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 have, we just go back to your word. We do so kindly. Lord, help us to do it kindly, lovingly. Oh, but Father, help us. Help us to dig in deep here with your word so that we can knowledgeably, kindly, lovingly, Christ-centeredly talk with people and help them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Make us a people uh, that see life as meaningful because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.